Bester. I will read for us Esther uh, 3, 1 to 15, the entire chapter, and then 9, 20 to 29. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. On the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy text of the edict was to be issued as law in the province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. 
The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Then turn with me to chapter 9, starting in verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the day as the days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on his own head, and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word poor, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the prescribed way and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote the full, with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. The word of the Lord. So we're continuing on in this series on Esther, and it's a series that we are calling for such a time as ours. Now I can imagine some of you maybe sitting in, in the pews and thinking to yourself, for such a time as ours, how can a book written so long ago to a people that is not the same people that we are, and seems to be so disconnected from everything that's going on in our world. How can we call this sermon series for such a time as ours? Well, and what we've seen, I think, in the past three weeks of this series is that the book of Esther actually does speak into the things that we're dealing with right here and right now. And the book is actually perfect for us. I think one of the reasons for this is because it doesn't actually give us a lot of answers, does it? And even the answers that it does give are ones that take time for us to realize and recognize. A lot of the issues that we see popping up in our news headlines are, are results of things that are deep and complex. There's no easy answers for what's going on in our world 
today. And, and the book of Esther, which, which is kind of like a slow cooker that you put on your counter on Sunday afternoon with all sorts of ingredients and vegetables, and you let it sit and cook and soften. And then the smell begins to fill your house. And then you begin to get hungry. And then you eat. The, the book of Esther is like this. It is, it is a book that doesn't give us easy answers, but it gives us the consistent and loving, faithful God who's always working in our world. Now, this doesn't mean that how these characters act in the book or the things that happen in the book are God's plan for what our world should be. In fact, if, if we look at the overall uh, book of Esther and, and we make it about morals, we've actually completely lost the point. And a, a quote that I stumbled upon actually preparing for last week's sermon uh, by a commentator named Karen Jobes sheds light on, on how we should faithfully see the book of Esther. And she says this, and I think this is so helpful for us. She's talking about Esther and Mordecai, and in chapter 2, when uh, they conceal Esther's Jewish identity. And she says this, It's natural to pass judgment on these two, whether positive or negative. But in doing so, we miss an important point. The deliberate silence in, in regard to the morality of Esther and Mordecai, the silence, there's nothing that says that God is happy or unhappy with the decisions that these two make in this book. So the deliberate silence is part of the message. Regardless of their character, their motives, their fidelity to God's law, the decisions of the characters make move events in some inscrutable way to fulfill God's covenant promises that he made to his people long ago. So when we look at this book, it's so important for us to not say, let's be like Mordecai, or, or let's be like Esther, or, or any of the characters. What, what an appropriate response to this book is, is to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you work with and that you work through broken human beings like Esther, like Mordecai. See, the Old Testament is full of these, these stories of people that we're not supposed to see as, as moral examples for us, but as examples of how we're to see ourselves. We are like Esther. We are like Mordecai. We are like Haman. And yet God works through these people for his good and delivers his people. And so this passage that we enter into this morning is no different. So we're turning to a point of the story that's dealing with only men, which is probably a, a nice thing for us to <laughs> look at this morning. Although what we've seen in this book is that men are the ones who do a really good job of messing things up every time. I hope that's not, um, or I hope that is a coincidence, rather. Uh, so the part of the story we just read tells us about a hostility, this hatred between Mordecai and Haman. And so what is hostility? Hostility is, is, a, is a deep dislike for someone. A feeling, you know, that feeling you get when your blood boils and, and you look at someone and you think, oh, I can't stand you right now. 
So Haman is an official in the court of Xerxes, and he's just been promoted by Xerxes and is to be honored by everyone in the court. And when Mordecai hears that Haman is to be honored, he doesn't participate in this. Uh, he, it's, the text actually says that day after day, the, the other people in the court tried their very best to convince Haman to uh, bow down to, to, more, to, to Haman. Uh, you know, um, it's kind of like when your friend sitting beside you in the classroom is chewing gum, right? And you know that, that you're not allowed to chew gum at school. And so you tell them, you're going to get in trouble for that. And, and every day you remind them over and over, why, why are you doing that? You're going to get in trouble for that. And then finally you reach a breaking point and you say, okay, I'm going to tell the teacher. See, this event in the court of Xerxes is actually like a dysfunctional kindergarten classroom. So the people in the court, they tell Haman, they tell him that Mordecai is not paying respect. And uh, Haman's response is not just to look for a way to talk to Mordecai, not just to look to a way to see, you know, what, what, what is it that's, that you don't want to bow down to me? but to seek to destroy all the Jews. So time out, okay? So if we can just track this story for, for what, where it's leading us right now. So, so borrowing a line from one of my favorite comedies, Anchorman, right, where, the, where all these news reporters get into this ugly brawl, and then at the, 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 after this, the dust settles, one of the main characters says, whoa, that escalated quickly. Right. That's how to control. So that's what's going on here. Like, look at what Mordecai did, and then Haman decides that he wants to kill all the Jews. What is going on here? So first of all, um, it may appear to us that, that Mordecai is doing a bold thing. You know, we, we were reminded of the book of Daniel, where Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow down to the idol. And, and, that's, and, that, and that's something that, um, you know, God used that. And, and they were thrown into the furnace and they didn't burn up and all. So we're reminded of that story here. But there's a, a difference between what they were asked to do and what Mordecai's asked to do. The original language makes it clear that, that Haman is not seeking people to worship him like a god, but simply to pay him respect. And there's nothing in the Torah, nothing in, in the law of the Jews that says that you can't pay respect to people. You can't, you can't bow down and pay respect. Actually, the Israelites did this to other kings. It's kind of like, you know, as Christians, we don't have a problem standing for the national anthem or shaking the hand and thanking a veteran. These are ways that we pay respect to other individuals based upon their standing in society. This is natural. For some reason, Mordecai doesn't want to do this. But then Haman, what, what happened with Haman? That he was so set on destroying not just Mordecai, but his entire, the entire Jewish race. So set that when he goes to the king to persuade him, he turns on all the cunningness that he has. The, the words that he uses to, to destroy 
in, in the original language, um, when, I forget what the word is in the NIV that's translated, but that word in Hebrew when he says, I, to destroy the Jews, to, to, um, to kill the Jews, that's a, that word, if you were audibly to say it in, in the original language, it would sound a, the same as enslavement. Almost identical. Which makes sense because when Esther goes to the king, she says, I wouldn't come to you and, and beg for my people's lives if, it was only, if we were only talking about being enslaved. We're talking about being killed. And so Haman is, is using his cunningness to make it seem like all he's suggesting is that the king would put these people to work. Not only that, but the amount of money that he pledges to the treasury is, he says, 10,000 talents of silver. That is actually equivalent to one-third of the gross domestic product of the United States of America. It's over a trillion dollars. This is absolutely absurd what Haman is suggesting. Why would something so small lead him to do something so great? Well, the author gives us a hint. Haman was an Agagite. Mordecai was from the tribe of Benjamin. Way back in 1 Samuel 15, when God commanded King Saul to go into battle against the Amalekites and to destroy them, King Saul goes to battle and he destroys most of them, but he doesn't destroy all of them. And he saves the choice livestock and their king, Agag. And then Samuel comes to Saul and says, what are you doing? You were told to destroy all these people and and you haven't obeyed the Lord. And, and, and then he prophesies and says that, that this would be the beginning of your downfall, Saul, that, that you didn't obey the Lord, and so this is what's going to lead to you losing the kingdom. And in fact, the kingdom will be divided as a result of this. And so in 1 Samuel 15, Saul responds by saying, shoot, I messed up. He goes and he murders King Agag and then uh, and, then, and, and, and tries to be um, you know, you know, apologize to the Lord and worship him, but, but the, the deed is done, and, and this leads to Saul's downfall. And now Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, same as Mordecai. And Haman was from the lineage of Agag. And in a oral culture where stories were passed down from generation to generation, that's how they told history. That's how they treasured history. They would have known They would have known. These two would have known. Now, I know hate is a strong word, but from this story alone, it isn't unreasonable to say that these two people hated each other. But how could Mordecai have anticipated such an overreaction from Haman? Haman took things way too far, but Mordecai couldn't humble himself, couldn't pay Haman the Agagite respect. And the result is chaos and death. But we're not dealing with this type of hostility anymore, right? You know, we've we've overcome racism like this, haven't we? Just last week, 11 people gunned down. America's most devastating anti-Semitic attack in Pittsburgh. I thought we were past all this. Why can't we learn from what happened between Haman and Mordecai and the hatred and the death and the chaos that ensued from them? Why can't we learn, you know, all the work 
that we do in seeking reconciliation, hearing from each other. And it's not just Christians. All of our culture seems to be talking about and celebrating diversity in thought, diversity in religion, diversity in, in the Western world, and yet Pittsburgh still happens. Hostility is still alive. Unfortunately, this, this incident in Pittsburgh is just a snapshot of what we see in our world. And we can um, go so quickly in our minds to the, the hostility against Christians in some countries, the destruction of, of ISIS, the, the violence in North Korea, the genocide in Rwanda. Like the list goes on and on and on. It seems as if when we pair the story in Esther and what's going on in our world today, that we are in the exact same spot. And so part of our response this morning was to lament this, right? To recognize that this is something that is alive in our world and isn't going anywhere. And we need help. But we can't just look outside of ourselves. The Sermon on the Mount, and I brought this up last week, but need to bring it up again. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brings up this idea of hostility and hatred. When he speaks on murder, he, and, but he ups the bar, and he says he makes it clear that murder is just the outward action of an inward condition. An inward condition. A problem that goes back to the beginning where God created this world good. In Genesis, it says that God created the whole earth, a place that we would, as human beings, fill and subdue. Do you know what the word subdue means? It means to bring order to, to bring, to, 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 to settle down, to, to, to work. Anger and hostility, resentment against one another, it does the exact opposite. It brings chaos instead of order. It complicates. It doesn't resolve. It breaks apart. It doesn't mend. See, whenever we get angry at a person, we're taking the situation into our own hands and trying to control it. Mordecai said, Haman doesn't deserve my respect. Haman said, Mordecai the Jew doesn't deserve to live. Hayden says, why do you get the credit? And not me. I worked hard at that. That's my thing. Hostility towards one another doesn't just harm the relationship with that person, though. We also hurt and destroy our relationship with God. When we feel hostility towards another person or, or an, another, uh, another human being, we harm the shalom, the peace that God created this world to, to be with. We tear apart the relationships that God created good. So when we start to follow this rabbit hole, the question we find ourselves landing on is not, you know, how can we work together to overcome the hostility we experience in our world and in ourselves, but who can deliver us from it? Because when we look at Haman and Mordecai and history and ourselves, we find ourselves like a truck stuck in the mud and we need a tractor and nobody's got a tractor so cue another great reversal remember esther 
is a story of great reversals. And we read about it this morning. Reading this story, it may seem like this is a battle between Haman and Mordecai. You know, a showdown between these two. That there can only be one winner. But again, we forget about the silent character. Because when it appears that Mordecai has won, in the end, it's not really Mordecai who's won. It isn't even the Jews who win. Rather, I think it's God's faithfulness that wins. See, Satan wants us to make this an us versus them battle instead of an us versus us problem. Right? And we all need someone to deliver us from ourselves. And what this great reversal in the book of Esther shows us when, when Mordecai's plan is brought to the king and he sees it for what it is and he flips it and Haman gets what he plotted the Jews to get, that great reversal shows us that God's faithfulness is greater and more resilient than anything we can do to mess it up. You can't stop God. Haman can't. But Mordecai can't either. What this reversal leaves us with, though, is the death of many people. And when we read about this in the final chapters of Esther, it's hard to reconcile. But we can't think that God delights in destroying people, even if they're enemies of the Jews. He allows it. He does it. But he doesn't enjoy destroying people he created in his image. All death is a result of the fall. It's our responsibility. And it reminds me of a, a song written by a man named Josh Garrels. And he's talking about uh, how there's things that we just don't understand in our world. And he says, tempted and tried, I wonder why. The good man dies, the bad man thrives, and Jesus cries because he loves them both. We're all castaways in need of rope. So the Esther version of this song might flip the second line and say, the good man thrives, the bad man dies. Or it might not. But Jesus cries because he loves them both. The anger, hostility, and resentment towards one another is a result of the fall, and it leaves us crying out to God, save us. We're all castaways in need of a rope. So cue another great reversal. You know, in this story, the actions of Mordecai not paying respect to Haman affected an entire race of people. Years later, the actions of an entire world fell upon one person. One person, Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah says that he took on himself the iniquity. He took upon himself the brokenness of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. As one of my favorite songs boldly states, you know, in Christ alone, on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. It was satisfied. 
This means for us that what Jesus has done, he's taken our sin and our brokenness on himself, and he's killed it once and for all. And as he rose from the dead, gives us a picture of what we receive through him, and that's a resurrection and new life by grace. By grace, it's a gift. This means now that there's nothing that can separate us from God's love in Christ. Nothing that can take away his grace. It was satisfied. When he said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. So how does Christ's death, resurrection, help us to overcome the hostility in our world? Paul, in the book of Ephesians, talks about reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. What Paul is saying is that now every person in the world is in the same boat. We are all sinners saved by grace, Jew and Gentile, by grace. And grace is a powerful thing. And it changes us and destroys hostility in two ways. More than two ways, but I'm going to highlight two this morning. First, grace is only for the humble. St. Augustine said after his conversion, he was talking about the three most important virtues for a person. Humility, humility, humility. The grace of Jesus destroys pride because we have to receive it in humility. The two words that destroy pride in our hearts, I can't. And we can't save ourselves. We all need to fall at the feet of Jesus. Humility opens the door to healthy relationships. Ever notice that humble people are the easiest to work with? They are the ones who don't let their emotions get in the way. They're the ones who are understanding Grace of Jesus makes us humble. It frees us to seek peace, not hostility. But the grace of Jesus also destroys fear because he bought us once and for all. So no longer do we have to be paralyzed by this fear that, that we have to somehow make sure that our future is secure. It's already secure in Jesus. It is finished. It's done. The grace of Jesus destroys fear. Though we will have trouble, Jesus says, he has overcome this world. A pastor in Nashville, Scott Sauls, often says, for the Christian, the worst case scenario is a life with God forever. Forever. See, this Christian hope destroys the need for us to control our future. We can let go. We can let go. Paul writes in Romans, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. A Christian has no need to feel or act control out of hostility or anger towards what someone else gets or how they act because our future is secure in Jesus. 
We're totally saved in Christ. And because of that, it frees us to live in peace with those who are around us, to enter into relationships with one another on a different note, with no hostility or resentment. We're saved by grace. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you work in and through broken people. We thank you that you have given us your word that we can see your faithfulness throughout the years and that you are faithful to us even now and you did deliver us in Jesus. And in grace we receive the gift of salvation and the freedom to live without pride or fear as a result. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us strength to do this, to let go of our anger and hostility, and to seek shalom and peace with those around us. In Christ we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing with us from the songbook number 106.